So, I'm writing a novel. Is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel. From first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time, I told you all about how I outlined a story called The Boy and the Blacksmith, a little romantic outing for my protagonist, Vo, in this short story cycle novel, still called Untitled Sword and Sorcery Novel. Titles can come from strange places, not always where you might expect them to, not always if you're riffing off of like something you previously read, uh, something that seems even remotely connected to what you're writing. Right, so this sword and sorcery short story that today I will be going through the outlining of for you is called Disgrace the Stone. It is the end of the first act of the novel. It is a big turning point in Vo's life where she decides to put down her ideas of heroism that she was raised on in stories and go down a different path. The title comes from the webcomic that this individual strip, but also the entire run pretty much, uh, has been living rent-free in my head for a long time, and listener, it's welcome to. That webcomic is called Akewood. Akewood.com, spelled like it sounds, A-C-H-E, wood, Akewood. I couldn't recommend it more. Some places are better to start than others, but luckily it's designed so you can easily navigate from one storyline to another, and there's a lot to say about it, but essentially it's funny animals getting up to hijinks, <laughs> just a little different than Garfield, let's say. And the author, Chris Onstad, has an incredible gift for distinct voices. If nothing else, I think it's worth taking a peek at just to see how like crisp and distinct all of his characters' voices are. But also, what they say and do is pretty funny, in my opinion. And one of the strips is riffing off of a musician named Klaus Nomi, who had a very distinctive look, to say the least. Um, but honestly, you don't need to know that. It's just uh, doing something weird and german it occurs to me this is a terrible first introduction to the strip, so just trust me, like, <laughs> if this isn't your cup of tea, this was a particularly weird one, even within the run of this comic. Anyway, uh, yeah, it, the very first panel is kind of irrelevant, and then it gets into a, uh, you know, one of the characters is named Theodore, he's a teddy bear who wears a sweater and has a kind of a mediocre life, and he's standing in front of a statue that looks just like him done up as Klaus Nomi, uh, that artist with the distinctive look. He speaks in German, but there are subtitles which I will read to you. They have a saying in Thuringen, do not make monuments to the living. And then the next panel, he blows his brains out all over the statue. He continues speaking, however. Do not make monuments to the living, for they can still disgrace the stone. But they are crazy in Thuringen. They drink so much low and brow that they lie. <laughs> anyway, why is that funny? Look, it's another story. But... Uh, <laughs> Trust me, it's one, this is one of those strips where it's like like a terrible introduction, but if you've been reading the comic all along, you would get a lot of joy out of that, if only because you've fallen in love with the character. Point being, that line, do not make monuments to the living, for they can still disgrace the stone. That was a line that was very much on my mind while writing this story. The other thing, written by someone else, I mean, there was lots on my mind while I wrote the story, but the other thing written by someone else that was on my mind was a very short poem by Leonard Cohen that has also lived rent-free in my head for a very long time, and it's so tiny I'm just going to read it to you right now. Here we go. The Reason I Write by Leonard Cohen The reason I write is to make something 
as beautiful as you are. When I'm with you, I want to be the kind of hero I wanted to be when I was seven years old. A perfect man who kills. Because how do our heroes usually resolve things, right? <laughs> I have seen that start to change um, in storytelling in the time I have been alive, but certainly the vast majority of stories that I have ever come across in mainstream Western media in any format, the hero tends to resolve things by killing somebody. And the hero tends to be someone, or at least modeled to be someone, that you think is amazing, just a paragon, a perfect man or woman or, you know, uh, gender fluid, somebody else, as we're getting to the present day, um, who kills. And I like that poem because I think it kind of, it makes me think of how heroes in the early Greek myths were more forces of almost chaos <laughs> and tended to be real sons of bitches. Um, but now we associate the word hero with someone great who does great things. Aren't they great? And then I think about what Vo would have been raised on, what story she would have been raised on, and how she was, you know, spending the first third of my novel trying to become a capital H hero. And at the end of the previous story, The Boy and the Blacksmith, she finally does something that kind of smells of, you know, being a hero. Then she takes the person she saved in that something, that act, uh, that made her feel like, yeah, I could be a hero, actually. Uh, on as her squire, more or less, even though she's not a knight. I mean, the purpose he serves is similar. And off she goes to have a career as a hero that I'm intentionally going to leave off camera and just say, you know, it's been a year or two and probably in the opening paragraph or maybe later in the story, I'll have the squire babble on about, oh, well, she's done this and this and oh my goodness, the adventures we've had. Because as cool as those adventures could be and as much as I may come back in the future and write Stories about that period in Vo's life. I mean, I, I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but one of the reasons I want to leave gaps between a lot of the stories in this novel, and one of the reasons I'm even structuring it as a short story cycle, is so that if people dig this character, and if I dig her enough to want to come back to her after this novel is done, I can. I can always just be like, yeah, here's a story from this partner life, or this partner life, so on and so forth. As well as, of course, continuing to her future after the end of this novel, assuming she lives. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so do not build statues to the living, for they can still disgrace the stone. And wanting to be a perfect man who kills a hero. And there's a third and final main thing that was floating around atop my head when I began outlining this in June 3rd, 2020. Yeah, this was only the second story I outlined, despite the fact that it is the fifth story in the chronological order of the novel. That's just how these things go. You know, after I figured out the hinge, the, the end of the second act, hinge going turning into act three, which just came to my mind so vividly I had to get it down, I decided to leap back to figure out what the hinge would be between the first and second act. It just felt like important to me because these are like the mini endings that I'm working towards, and it's good to know what you're working towards when you figure out the rest of it. But yeah, June 3rd, 2020, this is where the real world really starts to stick its nose in. Uh, a certain little pandemic had been going on for a few months at that point. Uh, it been going on for quite a few months, but we were only really super aware of it, it seemed, uh, since like mid-March, at least uh, in Canada and Toronto, where I live. And the party was starting to be over. Now, what I mean by that is not that we were loving the pandemic in Toronto. I just mean that things like people clapping and cheering and banging their pots and pans out the window as a show of solidarity with healthcare workers, well, that had died down. Meanwhile, employers of essential workers, 
Still love that phrase. I don't think I've been hearing it much lately as I record this on August 22nd, 2021. Uh, essential workers were starting to be forced to go back to work, assuming they'd even gotten any time off in the first place. And places like supermarkets that had been offering hero pay, remember hero pay? Uh, which was really just like the pay they should have been offering all along anyway, <laughs> uh, they were stopping with the hero pay. And they were just being like, get back to work. We we are rich people who own these things and we want money. God damn it, the economy is more important than human life. Anyway, this is not a pandemic podcast, but it got me to reading a lot of stuff that I'm sure you all were reading too at the same time. And I came across a phrase from one of these essential workers who was quite frustrated. And they simply said this, they looked us in the eye and said your labor is essential, but your lives are not. Well, I put that on a post-it and saved it in my denim notebook. I wish I'd written down the name of the person who said it or saved a link to the article, but alas, I did not. So there you go, the three sort of power phrases hanging around in my head. Do not make monuments to the living, for they can still disgrace the stone. A hero, a perfect man who kills. They looked us in the eye and said your labor is essential, but your lives are not. Vo is 24 years old. She has been adventuring for a bit, and she has her little squire. She is coming across a city in a desert or a certainly scrubbish, you know, sort of more desolate region. It's a city-state on its own with a king and some people that he rules. 24 was a turning point for myself. It's when I had been out of school for a little bit and decided to save some money and move to England to see what it would be like to live there for a whole bunch of reasons I won't bore you with. But you can see why 24 would stick in my head as a turning point year, and thus I give that to Vaux. Vaux's acts of heroism have just begun to earn some attention from those in power, and she's even had a few songs written about her. One such person in power decides she would be an excellent disposable tool he could use, and after it seems she is dead, he will build a statue of her to inspire others to sacrifice themselves on his behalf. Well, you know, the kingdom's behalf. But Vo returns, perhaps with others, to speak against the king, and the king's advisor could say the Akewood line about monuments to the living for they can still disgrace the stone, da-da-da. Hearing this, Vo would take her mighty warhammer to the statue, starting with quote-unquote her face. It would be probably an idealized rendition, of course, based more on the kingdom's ideas of classical beauty than what she actually looked like. And at this earliest stage here on June 3rd, 2020, I thought perhaps she would then inspire rebellion, including the king's soldiers, and soon he's overthrown. But I very quickly decided, oh, maybe not. You know, maybe she smashes the statue and having done something, you know, survived something that quote-unquote nobody could, she simply leaves, perhaps turning down a request from a member of the people to help overthrow the king. Yeah, maybe she just knocks her statue down and is like, I'm out of here. And then, very next line in my notes here, I, I think, well, hang on, maybe she hangs around to help build what comes next, is forced to reckon with her having no idea how to rule or build a community, and is worn down by the people's demands. So eventually she steps down, or maybe slinks away in the night, ashamed to try living only for herself, which is the whole deal for her in the middle of the book, in Act 2, rather than living for others, the public at large, that she serves as a hero, or the memory of others, her dead parents, or the long-dead heroes they told her about. This story not only gets us to a big change in who Vo lives for, 
but also kind of what she seeks in her life. See, up to this point, she has been seeking the high of glorious resolution. You know, things that happen, problems, you bring them to a point of perfection where they are over, and ideally they are over in the way that you want them to be over. Yeah. Then you move on to the next thing, and you resolve that, and so on and so forth. You just keep hitting those nails down into the board perfectly with your big warhammer. And yeah, she's going to be turning away from that to the far more undemanding, personally gratifying idea of living in a kind of stasis, even if it's like not perfectly frozen, but more of a boom bust cycle that's kind of satisfying, like say a classic sword and sorcery person who goes out and gets a bunch of treasure and then they've lost it all by the next start of the next story. Yeah, that's where Vo's going to be going. The third point that I want her to reach by the end of the whole deal, this novel, is eventually discovering the richer life of living it as a continuing process. It's never really resolved. It's never really in a place of stasis. It's constantly changing. Well, until you die, but anyway. <laughs> so, okay, I have a rough, 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 rough idea of the story, and I have a strong idea of where Vo is going and where she is at the beginning of the story in terms of who she is, what she wants, all that good stuff. Great. Then I just did some basic brainstorming of events and details and little character beats riffing off of what I've shared with you so far, which quickly got me to what felt like the thing I needed to work out in detail next, which is what is the thing that the king sends her off to do that's suicidal and wh how does, why does he do that? What's all of that? So I kind of came up with this, this idea that though perhaps, uh, you know, she's snapped up early in her arrival in the city, you know, she's a big hero, she, they've heard of her. Uh, and she is shown a hall of heroes, many from legends she knows. They maybe even give her, perhaps chintzy replicas, of heroic weaponry and armor. And then she is sent out, unwittingly, as a sacrifice to a demon, dragon, or heaven forbid, original creature <laughs> that is incredibly long-lived and demands a big sacrifice once every generation, let's say every 50 years or so, to prevent them from destroying the kingdom. Thing is big terrible thingy, would be happy either with the heart of a hero that they're eating freshly from their chest, or a king's ransom in gold, though doesn't know this of course. But every king the horrible thing has ever known has chosen to send a hero. Hell, the kingdom has grown so much that the gold the creature wants, a large sum when it first appeared centuries ago, maybe even millennia, is pretty affordable especially if the king spent less money on their royal guard and assorted luxuries, which made it easy for Vo to believe the king's promise of a lavish reward, seeing all that, right? Maybe the terrible thing tells Vo all of this because, unlike those before her, she really doesn't fear death, and so the beast can't take satisfaction from eating her heart. Or, I write, maybe she does fear it, but fights on anyway. Remember, she needs to be special, or why are we telling the story about her and not any of the previous heroes or somebody else who comes along, right? And then I'm wondering, like, does it free her? And then maybe she deals with the king by letting the people know the beast will kill them all unless they bring it all to king's gold. Eh, it could be a nice ending, I'm considering at this point. So I start to th figure out, like, okay, well, does it free her or does she defeat it? And ultimately, I think it's more interesting if it frees her, if she doesn't just beat it up or trick it or something, even though... That takes a bit of agency out of Vo's hands. This is about Vo having something shown to her, learning something, not really defeating or overcoming something. And really, the big thing that's going to make her loathe this horrible entity, even as it essentially does her a big favor, 
is learning that its true joy has been taken from the king's choice to sacrifice life instead of money. Mmm, yes, that's the sweet, sweet honey that it has been sucking on all these years. Okay, that feels like a pretty good middle. That feels like what I need. I have an idea of a beginning and an ending and a middle. Feels like a story. I also have all these specific beats, which I'm sparing you for now, that I've written down, including uh, actually one I will share where I wrote right in the margins. It was kind of a last idea. Maybe open the story with her stopping a thief. This could be what first gets the attention of the locals, and then they're like, hey, you're that hero. And, you know, they bring her to the king and everything starts happening. And the thief is put in the stocks and he'll be killed tomorrow or maybe just left in the stocks for weeks. The important thing is that when Vo comes back from the suicide mission and is like, you lied to me and knocks down the statue and all that good stuff, perhaps she also frees the thief and takes him with her. And the thief knows where the city of thieves that I want to set a bunch of the next stories in is. And she's like, all right, you're going to take me there and you're also going to teach me some thieving skills. And so we, you know, off she goes to become a very different Vogue that we'll be following. I also like this because of how it mirrored what happens in the very first story, which you can listen to me read to you if you have not already uh, in episode seven of the podcast in Vogue, where she takes a thief on as a guide and it doesn't go very well in some ways for her and the thief, although she does ultimately achieve her goals, I suppose, of getting off the island. And so she'll be a little more cautious this time. Now, like I said, this is only the second story I outlined. I was still figuring out what was going to be kind of my structure for outlining all of these stories, all 16 uh, on top of the first one, bringing us to 17. And so I kind of felt like I was basically done. I just did a quick run through of the you know, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, list of things that are not conflict <laughs> that stories can be about or have moments that center on, like relating, finding, losing, bearing, discovering, parting, changing. And then I just did a quick run through right after that of things like you know, the meat and potatoes of how this all functions, why my perspective, limited third person, tense, past, per, uh, point of view. I thought it was going to be Vo, actually, not the squire at this point. Um, you know, trajectory of, of hero uh, to disillusioned to a sort of survivor uh, is the way she goes. And everything in the story has to propel us along this line, okay? The focus, well, you know, Vo calling people heroes so we can feel okay about sacrificing them. And a theme of disillusionment, basically. But I didn't you know, really have a thematic statement or a bunch of other stuff that I've talked about in the other outlines that I've shared with you so far. But I, I don't know, that's just where I was at on June 4th, 2020, when I'm looking at this page here at the quote-unquote end of the outline. However, I would actually come back to it over a year later on July 10th, 2021. During that year and change, I read a great many more sword and sorcery novels and other books that I thought could help inform my writing of the novel. I attended some online uh, seminars and talks, panel discussions, that kind of thing that revolved around it and the publishing of it, and listened to podcasts, frankly. <laughs> Rogues in the House was quite helpful, as well as many episodes of the Appendix and Book Club podcast when they covered sword and sorcery books, and the other ones too, but you know. I did do more outlining, of course. I outlined the remainder of the first act uh, up to Disgrace the Stone, and in doing so, I discovered that I was going to have a daisy chain of brothers, right? I was going to have the eldest brother be her mentor in Monstrously Slow. I was going to have the middle brother be her love interest in The Boy and the Blacksmith. And then the youngest brother, who she rescues in that story, would become her squire of sorts in this story. And so now I know so much more about the squire that I didn't know before. So when I returned to outlining the story, which I realized needed more work as I had a better understanding of my process by now, I decided to start with a deeper character breakdown of the squire than he's young and um, helps her out. 
<laughs> and thinks she's really cool and knows her stories, which is all I really had at that point when I left it off the year prior. Knowing that he was 12 when he was rescued in The Boy and the Blacksmith and that I wanted him and Bo to have traveled for a couple of years and had some adventures by the time we get to the start of this story, that meant he was 14. I also knew that his ethnicity was approximately Syrian, whatever I end up calling the area, nation, whatever uh, the boy and the blacksmith takes place in and from which all three brothers originate. I now knew he was the kind of guy that is always, well, the kind of kid really, that is always somewhere they shouldn't be and has a general drive to explore and to get into trouble. I figure he craves exploring the unknown and adventure, but also the security of like a big brother type or hero or mentor to learn from and be protected by. I figure he got this from the eldest brother, the mentor figure from Monstrously Slow when he was very small. Got it from the middle brother who eventually got fed up with that role and left him to just get into whatever hijinks he gets into, part of how he winds up being kidnapped, right, in that story. And now, of course, he's very much given that role to Vo. Building on that, I reckon there's going to be an arc to how he sees Vo in this story, and thus an arc to my voice in the story, because it's going to be written from his point of view, no longer Vo's. I, I don't think I want to have her be the main point of view for a little while still. That arc of his voice might begin with sort of hopeful, you know, heroic and validated, scared yet confident when they encounter the terrible thing in the cave that's been being fed heroes all this time, perhaps confused or even disillusioned. Once Vo learns what she learns and begins behaving very differently, this will depend a little bit on when I reveal to the reader, uh, through him, what Vo has learned. I don't think I want it to be right away. I think I just want her to storm out of the cave and have some, you know, smoke coming out of her ears, basically, then reveal it perhaps in an angry rant as she smashes the statue of herself to pieces. Anyway, from this, I was able to go further into his emotions, his attitudes, his values, uh, you know, a few details about him, like maybe he always has scrapes on his knees due to him carelessly throwing himself into situations, right? And likes ideas more than execution, so he tends to half-perform his squirely duties, something Vo could be getting fed up with when we meet them at the beginning of this story. Because Vo being a big hero is so important to him, he likes to big Vo up to others, using as many adjectives like mighty etc. as possible. Perhaps I'll even work in the finest of all sword and sorcery words, according to at least fans of Robert E. Howard, Thews. Perhaps he will comment on her mighty thews as she uses them to swing her hammer in glorious battle. What part of the body, what musculature exactly is a thew? Ah, uh, I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> Meanwhile, in him, Vo sees herself as she was not long before the events of our first story of Vo. In turning away from heroism, she has to turn away from him. There really is no ending to this story where I see her taking him along with her. Now, it's true, I could have stopped here, having already done a bit of an outline of the order of events, but I felt like it was worth redoing them and being more detailed in how I did them on account of everything I'd figured out about the book between when I'd put this down and when I picked it back up again, the Disgrace of Stone outline. Why don't I read that to you now? All right, here's what I've got so far. They enter on a high street. I can introduce the setting and how they've been traveling together for two years, ever further eastward from the last story. They've been sleeping rough for a while and look forward to a proper bed. Then maybe we have a classic, you know, thief, thief, somebody's calling out thief. Oh no, there's a guy running away with a purse. Ah, and Vo and our little squire, who is unnamed, I'm just going to call him POV. Vo and POV work together to catch the thief. Vo demonstrates a quality that makes the local guards think she'll be a good candidate for the thing. 
Now, it doesn't hurt that POV sings her praises to the guards, summarizing highlights of their amazing adventures together over the last two years. But what the guards are really picking up on is that Vo is determined and demonstrates that she's stubborn, strong, and accepts what she's told without questioning. She hears thief, and she goes after the thief. So the guards are like, well, we could use a hero in this city. And they perhaps offer treasure, but Vo's kind of like, eh. And then they mention a hero that Vo recognizes from the story she was raised on. Somebody who passed through it before many years ago. And she's like, ooh, okay, yeah, actually, hang on. Maybe I will help you like that hero did many moons ago. On the way to see the king, they pass through a hall of heroes, you know, just statues on either side. And it's Vo's turn to sort of fanboy. And POV, little squire boy, is amused, then gets in on it. And then someone says, you know, if we build another, it'll have to go in the courtyard or the town square. It's for reasons I'll get to in a moment. It's important to me that Vo's statue or statue in progress not be inside the palace. And as this all happens, the guards feed into it. You know, we, we honor our heroes here in the city of to be determined, <laughs> the mighty city of TBD. Then we go into the meeting with King TBD <laughs> and tells her about the demon in the cave and the myth of how, you know, only a hero has to come and banish the demon every 50 years and Vo is here just in time to be that hero. And honestly, I'm going to lay on the schmaltz here because that's what the king is doing, right? Only one with the heart of a hero, you know. It demands we empty our treasury, but then how would I feed my people? And then it would ravage the land, oh dear. Oh, and uh, put the thief in stocks in the courtyard. How long? Well, for exactly how long Vo will be gone on her quest, plus one day. Then, at the end of that period, the thief will be killed, as is our custom. Naturally, Vo is all like, I'll do it, but she's humble and she cites her parents' teaching. She thinks of all the heroes she was raised on. At this point, I don't know if I have to do this, but I like the idea that they're like, okay, well, your Warhammer is really cool, but you're going to want to take with you these magical golden weapons and shields and armor that were worn by a previous amazing hero. And she's like, okay, but, you know, I'm the daughter of a blacksmith and, I mean, gold is soft and... You know, this, this seems to I mean, they're heavy, I guess. Is it magic gold? And they'll be like, yeah, magic gold. So magic. And <laughs> uh, here, let's take your Warhammer and your finely made chainmail that you've been carrying with you through all the previous stories. And you use this cool magic hero stuff. Don't worry. It's the only thing that will work against the demon. You're going to want to use these these magic gold things. Yeah. Well, she was raised to trust authority. And so Vo leaves with her new weapons and her Warhammer and chainmail left behind. And on the way out, she looks at the thief chastising them for only serving themselves. And perhaps I will try and invoke Krog somehow without being obvious about it, maybe giving the thief a sheepskin vest, Krog having been a shepherd, or having her say, you are a little island, you know, because to her that's isolated and small and provincial and dumb, everything she's left behind, something selfish, you know, serve others, serve a people, and you can be so much more, you know, she'll say to him, and the king will applaud her words. They serve his ideology, why not? Cut to riding shoddy horses given to them by the guard. The map is good quality, though. Very precise. And eventually they arrive at the cave of the demon. It is large with an unnaturally shaped opening. You really have to contort yourself to go through. Maybe she even has to remove her armor in order to do this. You know, Vo gets off her crappy horse and squares her shoulders, calling out a challenge. It goes unanswered. Seems like they'll have to go in. So they do. It feels weird and alien. 
triggering sensory input that makes no sense, like a funny bone being hit, or sinus congestion, loud noises, taste of a beating dog's heart on your tongue. Yeah, I'll, I'll figure out the specifics later. <laughs> Once inside, little POV the squire lights a torch, and they enter the dark mirror to the Hall of Heroes, the trophy display hall of the demon. Vo recognizes broken weapons, skeletons with six toes, one-armed so-and-so, you know, ways of recognizing heroes by their skeletons. One guy is much smaller than the legend said. Hmm. And then we're in the lair. And I have a little side note here, you know, dialogue that maybe the demon thing he has, like, I am this cave. <laughs> maybe we've been going inside the guts of it all this time. Just an idea. Point is, plainly rattled, Vo swings her heroic weapon and let's say hitting a stalagmite or a stalactite, reveals it's awful. <laughs> it's actually just heavy, 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 cheap metal like bronze or something with a gold leaf coating to make it look nifty. And it's just utterly mundane. And then the demon reveals itself, oh, you know, swearing to slay it. Now, it's important to remind you that this is going to be Little Squire's point of view. And the reason it's important to remind you is I see the demon communicating directly with those mind as a way of keeping this a freaky horrifying situation for the squire while Vo is getting the real scoop on what's been going on. Demon connects with her and sort of like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of bored here. And she starts muttering some of its words and POV, you know, gets ornery yelling and challenging the demon, you know, and then Vo's like, it no longer wants you in this conversation. And POV becomes convinced fairly that Vo is possessed. They flee, flee, you know, maybe Vo foams at the mouth, eyes roll back, stuff like that that really freaks out our little squire. And he flees all the way back across the, you know, desert scrubland, whatever, back to the city-state, back to the courtyard, where a statue of Vo is already up and being worked on, as if they had a generic lady hero one handy to customize. The sculptor, I hope I'm using the right word, is carving away and customizing it to be a little more like Vo or his vague idea of Vo based on briefly seeing her and a description or two. He also has her hammer handy as a point of reference. The other thing that's nearby that's of note is the thief, still around hanging in the stocks. And POV Squire Boy is confused by this whole situation. Confusing him even more, Vo appears behind him. He stammers about how she is many things, but sneaky she is not. So how, you know, and she might just answer matter-of-factly. Magic. POV Squire steps back and sort of like, oh, then you're possessed, you might say. You know, you're the, the demon's unwilling servant. And she's like, no, no, I am willing and I am awake. Maybe that's a cliche way of putting it, but mm, that's what I'm going to use for now. So Vo takes her hammer and sets to demolishing her statue in progress. POV Squire cries, just overcome by the whole thing. The noise begins to draw a crowd. Guards, and including the guard who recruited her early on. Vo, you know, is like being asked, how did you survive? By explaining boredom. The demon had grown bored. Now the king is watching from a window he's been drawn. Vo lays out what's actually been happening, happening for ages. People are just being sacrificed to this demon. And the nonsense of how the king at this point could just sell one of his chairs 
to pay the gold that was first asked for centuries ago when the city was just a little village for whom that amount was a tremendous price. Whatever the specifics of what Vo is raging about after she reveals the true story of what's been going on, the important thing is that we get across that she has decided that heroism is a ridiculous concept that is a great way of manipulating people into sacrificing themselves for others, usually the state. And, you know, we might even have her literally say something like each king looked a hero in the eye and said, your heroic labor is essential or your heroism is essential, but your life is not. Smash, you know, she'll punctuate every other sentence with just taking big chunks out of the statue with her warhammer. And the sculptor implores Vo to please be a hero of the people, to take her revenge on the tyrant king, which none of the people really like that much. But no, that's not the path for Vo. She just kind of ignores him. POV Squire's like, but Vo, you know, <laughs> like you've got to, you got you got to do the thing, man. You got to be the big hero. And she, or the very least, like, take me with you when you leave. You know, you've taken me so far from my family. And Vo, who, as I say, is turned absolutely to living for herself and herself alone, says, you know what? No, you chose to come with me. You could have stayed with your family or reasonably well off family. And you know what? You stay here. You stay with the sculptor and learn his trade. It's a good life. Then smash. She breaks the stalks, freeing the thief, saying, you know, where would you go if you could? And he's like, well, I would go to the big city of thieves. Oliver wants to set the next bunch of stories in. And she's like, well, then let us go. You have much to teach me. And that's where the story will end. Uh, that's where the story is at. Am I done writing it? Of course not. Aside from the fact that I still have to write the pages <laughs> and edit the bejesus out of them and so on and so forth, I've got to come back and figure out some more details on this thing. I want to figure out a little more about the culture, what could lend itself to the story, not just mindless world building. I've also probably got to figure out a little bit more about the demon thingy. You know, I, I really... At this point, in the outlining stage, don't care what it looks like, where it's from, what its name is, and maybe I won't need any of those things when it comes to writing the actual pages, but maybe I will, or maybe I won't need them, but knowing them could help me add a little more depth to the thing. Honestly, this story seems like the type, I mean, they all are to a certain degree, but this one, a little more than normal, feels like the kind of thing where I start with just a blank canvas and then I do the base sketch and then the base coloring or whatever inking I'm obviously not a painter <laughs> but you know what I mean like it's just this little thing of like just going over the whole thing over and over again each time adding a little more detail but at this stage it feels pretty written in terms of outlining I feel like I could start writing the pages and feel okay with that and that's the point I'm trying to get to with each of these outlines it's not having a hundred percent of the thing worked out it's having enough I feel like I can write the pages when I'm ready to, which will be months from now because I want to outline the rest of the book before I come back to write any of more pages. All right, that's Disgrace the Stone. I hope you found it interesting. I hope you are looking forward to reading the proper story when the time comes. I have no doubt a bunch of little bits and pieces will change, but the basic story should be the same. Now that we've reached the end of the first act and Vo has turned from trying to be a hero to just deciding to serve herself, well, that's a good place to take a break from outline episodes. I reckon if I just did nothing but the outline episodes from start to finish of the whole novel, well, that would be 16 episodes at one a week. That's four straight months of just outline episodes. Too much, too much. So I'm going to break things up with some interviews. Who will I be interviewing next week? 
I'm honestly not sure because I'm in the process of getting people organized to be my lovely guest on this lovely show. I've got four people that feel pretty solid, but you never know who's going to drop out last minute. And I'm never sure what the order is going to be because I have a nice little buffer so far of episodes, which gives me the option of kind of rearranging future episodes order at the last minute. So... We'll find out, but I promise you it will be a good bunch of folk covering a bunch of different angles of craft, what it is to be a writer, sword and sorcery, and all that good stuff. And then we will come back for Act 2, though the classic sword and sorcery protagonist, I don't even want to say hero, starting off with her in a city of thieves with a new best friend. I gotta say, designing the best friend was a lot of fun, and I really look forward to sharing with you the whole deal with her. There also probably will be a whole episode dedicated to the world-building exercise of figuring out this city of thieves, and figuring out what needs to be figured out, and what shouldn't be figured out and where to stop because you can always world build from here to creation and i can always keep talking from here till the end of creation so why don't i wrap it up <laughs> so i'm writing a novel features original music by gloria guns and is hosted by yours truly oliver brackenbury if you'd like to submit a question then please email it to so i'm writing a novel at gmail.com bonus points if you record yourself and send me an mp3 i can cut into the show doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>